Please remain standing and pray with me. Heavenly Father, we, we come before you this morning with gratefulness and thankfulness in our hearts to you. Lord, we ask you, as we just sang, to, to speak to us words of life and words of power. Lord, as Randy read this morning, uh, it's through the foolishness of the gospel message that we are saved and that we have anything today. And so, Lord, would you help us to be foolish for your glory and not for our own? Lord, would you move in power and might uh, for the sake and the life of the world and not for the esteem and the praise of men and for the expansion of uh, a local congregation, but for the expansion of your body in this world uh, so that you would receive all glory. And so, Lord, make this, uh, make this sermon, make this moment in time um, to that end, Lord, that you would receive all glory and that we might bask and, and be in and reflect your glory this morning, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. My sermon text this morning is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4. It's on page 809 in the Pew Bible. Matthew chapter 4 and verses 12 through 22 that Father David just read for us. Our Gospel reading this morning marks the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. And here in Capernaum of Galilee, the Gospel writer Matthew tells us what Jesus came to do in a summary statement. Verse 17, verse 17 of chapter 4, Jesus began to preach, and what did he say? Saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew has over and over again told us in the beginning of this gospel that Jesus is David's heir to the throne, and here Jesus publicly identifies himself as the long-awaited king in the line of David, who is restoring God's heavenly kingdom on earth. And with this declaration, he invites everyone to turn around, to turn around and to follow him into the kingdom, in, follow him in. Jesus will go on to declare his kingdom and bring heaven to earth throughout the rest of the gospel. That's what this, this statement is summarizing, what he's about to do. But here at the beginning, more than simply declaring the content of Jesus' message, of his proclamation in this inaugural one-sentence sermon, Matthew painstakingly highlights where Jesus is preaching this sermon. He, he stops and he tells us where, where he's preaching. In the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, Matthew stops to tell us that Jesus moved from Nazareth. So he's, he's moved from Bethlehem to Nazareth, and now he's moving again. He's moving to Capernaum by the sea. And why? He did this to fulfill Isaiah's prophecy that the light of the world would dawn in Galilee of the Gentiles. Of Galilee of the Gentiles. So remember back to the first sentence of Matthew's gospel. This is the book of the genesis of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, the son of King David and the son of our father Abraham, the son of Abraham. Jesus is the returning king. And Matthew, again, reminds us that Jesus begins his ministry with Gentiles like you and me, with the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 
Jesus will be lifted up, okay? He will be lifted up and crowned as king in Jerusalem later. Later in this gospel, at the end of the gospel, he will be lifted up on a cross and crowned with glory and majesty. But the son of David and the son of Abraham begins his ministry in small town Galilee with powerless nobodies. So continuing in our gospel reading this morning, right after he begins his public ministry, Jesus calls the first disciples. We're, we're pretty familiar with this language, the calling of the disciples, fisher of men, all this kind of fun stuff. He calls Peter and Andrew his brother and then James and his brother John. Jesus has preached one sentence. He's preached a one-sentence sermon, and now he has disciples. Man, I wish it worked like that. <laughs> The disciples count whatever gain they had as lost, their, their family, their vocation, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, their king. And I know my sermon is already much longer than this one-sentence sermon, but here's the remarkable reality. This unbelievably effective proclamation, repent for the kingdom of heaven is here right now, this sermon is still redeeming the lost today. It's, it's just, it's foolish. He says, I'm the king. Jesus is king and he's here. Through the foolishness of this simple proclamation, men and women turn away from finding their worth and value in other people or in themselves. They turn from finding their worth from not finding their worth in what they own or in their strength or their skill. Today is the day to bow the knee to King Jesus. So I'm inviting you, if I'm doing nothing else this morning, I'm inviting you to find your worth in the costly wounds of love, the shed blood of Jesus the King, the resurrected Lamb of God, who takes away your sin and shame God is not mad at you. He loves you. Jesus is king and he's here. So our gospel reading begins at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry with this message. And immediately after this, Jesus calls his first disciples. And this is what I've been reflecting on this week. This call to discipleship at the beginning. Right at the beginning of the gospel, he's calling his disciples. In Matthew chapter 4, it's the, the immediacy of discipleship in Jesus' ministry that I, I believe should be shocking to us. It's been shocking to me this week, so let me explain what I mean by shocking. Why is this shocking right here? We all know the Great Commission at the end of this gospel, right? The Great Commission to go forth and make disciples, of all nations and all peoples and baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, Jesus completes his gospel mission. So the whole gospel of Matthew, he completes it. He proclaims the year of the Lord's favor. He conquers the evil one and every unclean spirit. He seeks out and he teaches and he heals all people. He dies on the cross. He rises again, conquering death and hell and the grave. And then, and then he tells his disciples, he calls his disciples to follow him and to do the same thing, to do the same thing. Complete the whole gospel 
and then go and make disciples. This is how it, this is how it makes sense in my head. So what is Jesus inviting the disciples into at the very beginning? At the very beginning of the story, what is he inviting these disciples into at the beginning of this gospel story? After this one-sentence sermon in Jesus' invitation to his first disciples, I think that we reflexively, we reflexively assume the rest of the story. Come and follow me. And we assume all the things that have come after. What is he saying right here? We assume the Apostles' Creed every point. We assume the whole story. We pack it in there. And that's okay. Don't feel bad about that. But what, what is he saying right here to the disciples? Our sermon text from Matthew 4 and Jesus' first one sentence sermon invites us to look back. To look back and to remember the foundational story that is now fulfilled in Jesus. The foundational story that is now fulfilled in Jesus. So at the very beginning of belief, right at the first moments of believing in Jesus, the disciples of Jesus are invited and so are we to live in and to live out a different story. And I might sound like a broken record to many of you, but this is one of my few swan songs before I go up to Beckley, West Virginia. So here you go, all right? Live with it. I want to answer three why questions this morning. The first question, why story? Okay, why is most of the Bible story? Why? Number two, why story from this text, from Matthew, from Matthew's gospel in chapter 4? And then finally, why does this story matter for me? In other words, why is the whole Bible story about Jesus, why is that foundational to our discipleship? Okay, so first, why story? The father of modern philosophy, okay, stay with me for a minute, okay? I'm going to get into a little bit of uh, abstract thinking, okay? So, the father of modern philosophy, Plato, wrote in The Republic. He said this, The beginning is the most important part of any work. In the work that is the construction of the human person, children should hear good stories and not bad ones, okay? So, there's Plato for you. So we tell our children stories from the beginning of their lives. We can't help it. And weave together with the story of their, their life and their family, these stories form the foundation for everything else. How they play, how we play with them, how we under, understand ourselves, who we are. Late in life, the childless C.S. Lewis, okay, the childless C.S. Lewis figured this out. So he wrote Narnia, okay? Tolkien, he knew that depressed post-World War I England needed a story to wake them from their pessimistic slumber. Authors and speechwriters and parents and screenwriters and pastors and biblical writers and songwriters, they all tell stories that shape us, but most of us don't believe that. We don't, we don't believe that by the way that we act, by the way that we consume stories. Most of us believe that stories exist merely to illustrate the real point, the main point. They're just an illustration. We think the important point is the point. The important part is the point itself. And if we are clever enough, 
We can attach a story to it or a parable. We can attach it to that main point to help us remember the important part. But in reality, both politicians and Plato know that human life is grounded upon stories. Scientific naturalism is a story. Religious supernaturalism is a story. Your smartphone and PBS kids both tell us a story that I am the center of the universe, that everything revolves around me. Romantic, optimistic, Aaron Sorkin political movies and TV shows have given way to Machiavellian, pessimistic political tragedies. Once romantic political stories and now tragic political stories everywhere. And this matters so much more. This shift from romance to tragedy matters so much more than Donald Trump's Twitter feed. Don't read his Twitter feed or anyone else's for that matter. Just don't do it. I don't even know what's going on there. But this this shift, it matters so much more. We tell stories to sell beer, to sell churches on billboards and websites, to shape and to mold everything that we value in this life. I'm going to continue to beat this dead horse. I'm going to keep going. We mistakenly believe that if we hear enough good doctrine in sermons, if we recite the creed enough, if we have the right list in the right order in our mind, if we say the right things and believe hard enough, then it doesn't matter that we live out a different story on cable news or Instagram, Instagram stories. But we're dead wrong. We're dead wrong. The fortress walls of good liturgy cannot stand against the flood of the stories that we consume. Catechesis and the creeds will crumble to the ground if the foundational story is built on sand, okay? So let me say this one more way by quoting Bishop N.T. Wright. All right, hear this. Stories are peculiarly good at modifying or subverting our beliefs. Where head-on attack would certainly fail, stories hide wisdom the wisdom of the serpent behind the innocence of the dove, gaining entrance and favor which can then be used to change us. Nathan tells David a story about a rich man, a poor man, and a little lamb. David is enraged, and Nathan springs the trap. Tell someone to do something, and you change their life for a day. Tell someone a story, and you change their life. Okay, so there's my answer to why story, okay? Part two. Number two, why story from this text? We want to get it from the Bible, not just say stuff, not just philosophy about story. Why story from Matthew's gospel? Now, the gospel writer John, in John 1.1, he clearly recalls the beginning. You guys are familiar with this language. In the beginning, Luke's genealogy, it goes back to Adam. So he recalls the beginning of the story. And like Mark's gospel, Matthew is more subtle. Verse 1, the book of the Genesis, the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. Matthew is retelling the story from the beginning, and Jesus is the main character. Genesis 1.1, before day and night, hear the story, before day and night, before we could even think about time, 
Before days and weeks and seasons and animals and people, there is one God, the co-eternal Father, Jesus his Son in the unity of the Holy Spirit. Outside of time and in perfect unity, in a love that existed before the heavens and the earth, in glorious beauty and perfect relationship, this is the author. He is the author of this story, and he is not needy. He is overflowing. The creator God is not bored. He abounds in love, and so he wants to multiply. And out of the overflow of the infinite perfections of the holy God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He made a king and a queen in his image to rule over his good creation, but they rebelled against God, deceived by the snake. They sought security in their own word instead of his word and were exiled to a hard and fruitless earth, and every person after them went their own way. Matthew chapter 2. Jesus goes into exile in Egypt. Matthew chapter 3. Jesus returns through the waters of the Jordan River in baptism. Matthew chapter 4. Immediately, Jesus goes into the wilderness and is tempted by the evil one. Exile. Exile in Egypt. Through the waters. Into the wilderness. Out of the tyrannous kingdom that Adam and Eve built. The loving God saved his people through the water of the flood in Noah's story. He walked with wandering Abraham in the wilderness, with Joseph and Israel in Egypt. Again, slaves in a tyrannous land. Again, slaves to their self-made security. Again, slaves to their passions. And God saves his rebellious son, as it says in Exodus 4, my rebellious son Israel through what? Through the waters, through the waters of the Red Sea. And again, he leads them where? Into the wilderness, on their way to the promised land. And again, they wander. They don't find rest in the land. And again, they are enslaved into exile in Babylon. And again, they are awaiting the coming king to lead his people out of exile through the waters, through the wilderness, and into the restored kingdom and land. Exile in Egypt, through the waters, into the wilderness. This is the pattern of the biblical story. This is exactly how Matthew starts his gospel. And in Matthew chapter 4, at the very beginning of belief, the disciples of Jesus are invited to remember this story. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus goes into the wilderness. He is tempted by the evil one. And this is the moment in human history. This point right here. This is the moment when the story changes forever. You hear me? He does not wander. He makes a straight way through. Having come through the waters of deliverance, Jesus walks through the wilderness of temptation. And in our gospel reading, Jesus walks into the promised land, a land filled with outcasts and fishermen, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, Galilee of the Gentiles. And he begins to proclaim good news and gather disciples. 
Jesus looks back and he remembers and proclaims this foundational story of the world. And with Jesus, the gospel writer Matthew tells us, tells us that this story from the very beginning is all about Jesus. It is all fulfilled in him. There is only one way through the judgment of the flood. There is only one way through the wilderness of temptation. There is only one way into peace and rest. It is in, with, and through Jesus. Jesus, every step along the way, he remained faithful when Israel and when you and when I fail. He was not consumed by the flood. He did not fail the test. And at the very beginning of belief, the disciples of Jesus are invited to look back and remember and retell this story. So that's the story from the text. Why does this story matter for you and for me today? Every good story, whether Star Wars, and we can debate that or not, is that a good story or not? <laughs> or the Wing Feather Saga, which I was crying last night reading that to my boys, or the Marvel Cinematic Universe, or the Green Ember, or the list goes on. Every good story, at their best, it reflects this pattern. This true story. Good stories teach us that we are helplessly drowning in the waters and need salvation. Good stories call us to virtue, to stop mindlessly pursuing our passions and feeding our weak desires. They teach us to not be selfish, to give up our life for the life of someone else. Every good story needs a hero. Someone else must die to redeem you through the waters. Someone else must lead you through the trials, defeat the enemy, equip you for the fight, lead you to the promised land. Disney Plus or Fox News or PBS Kids or whatever you devote yourself to, at their best, they are only a pale reflection of the true story. Most of the time, these are the kinds of stories we hear. Here they are. And we, we, we thoughtlessly feed them to ourselves and to our children. You can do it. That's the number one story of America. You don't need anyone else. Find your handsome prince and everything will be happy ever after. You don't need a prince. All you need is yourself. Stories of apocalyptic panic. Stories with morally awful main characters. Documentaries make up new sins and conveniently point us to new saviors, political saviors, or with three easy payments, you can buy my book. Stories that shame us into obedience or else. Never forget, never forgive. See, none of these stories begins with re rebellious and sinful me, humanity. And none of these stories ends in redemption, with forgiveness of sin, with rest and the abundance and joy of Jesus' kingdom. So again, I ask, why does knowing, remembering, and retelling the story of Jesus matter for you and me? Because we are experts. We are experts at distracting ourselves with bad stories with fleeting passions, with cable news, with pornography, with surface-level romance, 
with the meaningless distractions of games and Facebook feeds and Instagram stories. And all of our stories are dead in the water if Christ does not pass through the waters first. And even after that, even after, even after we are buried with Christ in baptism and we are raised to walk in newness of life, still we are prone to wander, as the hymn says. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love in the wilderness. The true story of the world centered on Jesus, fulfilled by Jesus. This story matters for us because every other story begins and ends with you as the hero, and we all know that that story doesn't go anywhere. Every other story in this world begins in chaos, an apocalypse, or disinterested philosophy, and there is no way out. There is no salvation. These are the stories that we begin our days with. That's what we do, that we embody and we live them out, that we passively consume and distract ourselves with. So here's the question. Does the story of your day begin with the unchangeable I am or with frantic everything else? Do you act out the story of your life beginning in the security of the Father's warm embrace, his affectionate hug, with the self-sacrificing son and older brother who goes before you and leads the way, with the always present comforter who sees the darkness of your heart and still he calls you back to himself. The author of the story must set the narrative of our days, and it will. It will. What you begin with will. It will set the narrative of your day and so don't start your day with the vain philosophies and empty deceits all around us. So, Christian, rehearse the true story in daily morning prayer first. Or, better yet, begin your day with Bible reading and prayer instead. Instead, not just first, but instead of your self-righteous newsfeed, Instead of your self-centered Instagram story. Instead of your self-empowerment mantra, all of our stories end in the flood of dissatisfaction and in the wilderness of depression. Here's a very important sentence, and I want you guys to hear this. Morning prayer, Anglican liturgy, the daily office, is not a magic bullet for a perfect day. But it is a better story. It is a better story. In the flood and wilderness of your day, the story of faithful Jesus, your hero, your faithful king and savior, he is your and my only hope. So believe the true story again today. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.